Roughly 20 years ago, roughly 20 years ago in this community, pastors in Jessamine County got together and they uh, decided that they wanted to call an evangelist and they wanted to hold a crusade. And so uh, they prayed, they coordinated, they advertised, and they invited. And for five nights, we packed out the at the time, only high school in Jesmond County. So it was packed out every night, five nights in a row. Um, and the person who came at the time billed himself as America's small town evangelist, the Billy Graham of small towns. And so, you know, and, and so there was a, every night he would present the gospel and extend an, inv an invitation. Well, when he went back and when the pastors got together to kind of have a post-mortem on the crusade, and they had gone through all the cards. They found that 35 people had made decisions or rededicated their life. And I remember my boss, uh, my senior pastor at the time, saying, well, you know, if only one of them had done so, it would have been worth it. But I could hear in his voice a disappointment. I, and I could tell by the guys that were talking, and at that time they were all guys, that were talking that somehow, some way, they felt like it wasn't successful. Um, that m maybe uh, they had done the advertising wrong or whatnot. And when it all came to the end of it, what they had concluded, their post-mortem was, the room was packed full of people who had already made a decision, had already at some point accepted Jesus into their life or in asked Jesus into their heart or... Um, uh, prayed the prayer or at camp or at youth group and so when the evangelist came up and and asked them to do that they they thought to themselves oh yeah i did that 10 years ago or i did that two summers ago or 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 whatnot okay and so apparently the auditorium was filled with the home team right now for a long time in america american christians have talked about christianity as a set of truths Believe these things and you're in. Um, they were most made famous by a guy uh, by the name of Bill Bright who came up with something called the Four Spiritual Laws. Okay, so in case you've ever heard of this, this isn't something that was passed down from the early church fathers like the Didache. This is something that's about 50 years old, okay, to put that into context. And so the Four Spiritual Laws that Bill Bright came up with were these four right here. God loves you and has a plan for your life. Law number two, you're a sinner. That's bad for you. It means you're separated from God. But number three, Jesus died in your place and rose again. So that gives you an opportunity for spiritual law number four. If you receive it as a gift, then boom, you're in. And so what Bill Bright was aiming to do was to provide clarity. And I am grateful for Bill Bright and, what, and all of his work through Campus Crusade for Christ. There's no doubt of being greatly used of God, and I mean that in all sincerity. But as a young man and a middle-aged man now, I wonder if some of my evangelical fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers and grandmothers in the faith in their attempt to simplify things have ended up just muddying the waters. And here's what I mean. In America today, so why would I say they've muddied the waters? In America today, you have people who will say, oh, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, but there's no difference in how they live their life at all with anyone else. 
with a Buddhist or a Muslim or an agnostic or atheist neighbor. There's no difference in how they make decisions. In other words, if you were to say, well, is like Jesus directing you, their decisions, their lifestyle choices are based on what they want or what they need in any given situation. I say that because there are some people in America who would say, oh, I'm, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, and, and I was saved back when I was 17, when I was 11, when I was 21, and now they're 35 45, 57 years old, and you look at the arc of their life, and there's been no major changes to them as a person. In other words, they don't love any more profoundly or deeply. They don't forgive any more freely. They're, the issues that dog them at age 57 are the same issues that dog them at 20. And so, right? Uh, I say this because there are people who would say today, oh, I'm, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, but they have absolutely nothing to do with the lost and hurting world. Um, Jesus himself said, I came and seek to save the lost, those who are lost. Um, I love, I was at a conference in Chicago a week ago, and I met a pastor, his name is Ted. He pastor, he's a pastor of a church in uh, Wisconsin, like, where they got cheese and great accents, okay? And so, he was saying that he tried to do an evangelistic thing within his church, and one of the church members pulled him aside and said, Ted, I don't know what you're doing. That's what we pay you to do, right? And so the mindset was, well, you know, lost and hurting world, that's your job. That's not my job, okay? So over the next few weeks, I want to pose and answer this question. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? And I want to articulate three marks, three things that when you see those things, you go, that's a disciple. It may be messy, there may be all kinds of stuff going on, but right there, that's a disciple. I also want that for you so that you have the ability to go, ah, I am a disciple. I am following Jesus or I'm not there. That's not me, okay? And, and the reason I want to do this is because in our congregation, we have a number of people who are relatively new to Christianity. We have some people in our congregation and our family who their church background wasn't particularly helpful for them, okay? And so because the waters are muddied, I want to provide some clarity uh, for that, okay? So here's my bottom line in case you miss it. So the first mark of a disciple is Jesus leads, I follow. Jesus, I mean, it sounds simple, but when we get into it, it's a little bit more than that, okay? So, but Jesus leads, I follow. That's the first mark of a disciple. And when you're looking at someone else's life and you're like, well, I'm not talking about the whole judging thing, okay? I'm just saying when it comes to your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, your brother, your boss, the, the, your best friend, Jesus leads, they follow. It's that simple. Jesus leads, they follow. That's a mark of the disciple. And in order to, to, to get into this, I really want Jesus to speak today. And so we're going to look at three key passages in the Gospels where Jesus is articulating what it means to be a disciple along this line. Okay, and the first passage is from Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Uh, and we're going to be in verses 17 through 25. All right? And I'll even put that up there. All right, boom, there we go. All right, from, that, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, 
Simon, who also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they were fishing for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called to them, too. They immediately followed him, leaving their boat and their father behind. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom. So there's a key verse here, and this is the verse over the next several weeks I want to flesh out. Jesus called out to them, come follow me, I will show you how to fish for people. Uh, the older translations, follow me and I will make you fishers of men and women, okay? The first part of that is follow me, follow me. Now, Brian Hall has done a great job teaching us what it has meant, what it meant to be in the first century a student or a follower of a rabbi, all right? So in the first century, um, the way it worked was if you thought to yourself, you know, I want to follow one of these rabbis, you would pick one out. You would go, no, nah, I don't like Oprah. Oh, Simon Bar Yeshua? I love this guy. This guy's got it going. I want to be a follower of Simon Bar Yeshua, and so I'm going to follow him. And so you would go to him, and you would ask permission, and he would kind of interview you. And if it all worked out, you would get to become a follower of that rabbi. And you would literally leave stuff behind and follow him with the goal being that over time, you would become just like him. Jesus, of course, does so many things wrong. <laughs> when Jesus comes on the scene, people don't choose Jesus. Jesus chooses them. And so the people that he chooses, by the way, are not the people that you and I would choose. Let's remind ourselves of this. The lot of the 12 initial disciples are second-rate fishermen, um, somebody who was a zealot that was wanting to overthrow the government and that didn't work out so he ended up one of jesus followers like you know a tax collector who was also stealing and embezzling money from people extorting money from people like this is the list when you looked at them as a group these are not harvard grads these are not national merit scholars these are not people that when you got them in a room you would say you guys you guys are going to change the world baby like it just wouldn't you know it wouldn't happen okay so that's one thing about that. Now, this moment, this moment where he says, come follow me, I need to explain this because when I was a young man and I would read this passage, I always thought of it this way. Jesus comes along the shore in a deep, booming voice, Charlton Heston voice, because that was the God voice when I grew up. Come, follow me. And almost like, by your command, or, you know, um, in a kind of a Cylon way, or, yes, master, yes, master. Like he had some kind of freakish power where, you know, this stranger shows up along the shore and you're fishing and literally you jump out of your boat and follow him. Like who does that except crazy people that are on drugs, okay? So you need to know a little bit of the backstory here. See, James and John and Peter and Simon, they had all had an on-again, off-again relationship with Jesus for over a year. They had, uh, uh, Peter, Andrew, had already left John the Baptist. He had been following John the Baptist and got his brother, Peter, to come along with him and start following Jesus. 
And John, Peter, Andrew, and John were at the wedding in Cana of Galilee where Jesus turned the water in the, into wine. They were kind of his little pseudo-assistants. And so they had this on-again, off-again relationship with Jesus so that when this moment comes and Jesus says, follow me, they're at a point where they're ready to make that kind of informed decision, okay? Does that make sense? You know the funny thing is, that's how it works today. Have you thought about that? For many of us, when it came to finding our way back to God, there was a season of on again, off again. We had a friend or somebody who seemed to really take their faith seriously. They would talk about things and we'd have this feeling in our chest and we would be like, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I've been meaning to do something. I've been meaning to kind of get back with my faith or whatever that was. And then we'd go to a church service or some kind of a thing and we would feel the Holy Spirit at work and we would feel this pull and then, you know, life would happen and we'd be off of it for a while. And then, but we got to a point, right, where we were faced with a, follow me, and we were like, yes, okay? It hasn't really changed in two millennia. It just looks a little different, right? Okay, so that's the first passage. So again, Jesus leads, come follow me. We follow, that first mark of a disciple. And if that weren't clear, let's look in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and following. Then Jesus said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower... You must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but you yourself are lost or destroyed? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, then the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels." Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. The verbs here, if you like had to go through Dr. Hawthorne's excruciatingly painful Greek class, okay, uh, there's verbs, because this is grammar and stuff like that, right? Okay, so the take up your cross, deny yourself verbs are past tense verb, aroist, aroist verbs. The follow me verb is a present tense verb, an ongoing following me has this ongoing aspect to it, okay? Uh, Jesus leads the way, the disciples follow. This is clear, right? But let's be honest, in America, we kind of like it the other way around, don't we? Like, we like the idea of God, but what we really like is if, hey, I mean, if we're honest, right, a lot of us, for it's our prayer is, hey, Jesus, could you bless my business, marriage, school, graduate degree, you know, whatever it is, you know, I'm doing this thing here. I'm working really hard, God, to like, can you help me with this? And so for a lot of us, the orientation of our lives, Jesus isn't so much leading as we like to think of him as a coach or an advisor or a supernatural helper. And he is those things, but he wants to be so much more. When Jesus says that you'll lose your life, he's not lying. And I know this firsthand, so I made a decision for Jesus initially when I was 11 years old. Fast forward a few years, and I read the Bible for the first time, and I felt God talking to me and basically saying to me, I want you to take an extra step. I want you to enter full-time ministry. And I had that strong call. And other people in my life, family members, my grandmother, people in my church were like, yes, this is God's call for you. We, we we, we see that and we, you know, feel the same way. And so by the time I got to my senior year in high school, 
I was so scared to death because I was such a good speaker. I had a job once to introduce the governor of our state, and this, I know it was a big deal because we were giving away academic letter jackets. We were the first high school to do that, and you're like, oh, I'm all surprised. But anyways, right, so I was part of that program, and the only thing I needed to do was, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Governor Robert Orr, right? And I got up there, and I was... <laughs> I couldn't say a word. My band director had to come up, put his arm around me, and go, what Mark is trying to say is, please welcome Dr. Governor <laughs> Right? And he literally had to force me down into my chair. I didn't bend. I wasn't bending right. <laughs> okay? So I thought to myself, I'm going to totally stink as a pastor. This, like, God can't be right about this, and, and I'm so scared, and so... I started off college in the conservatory of music. I was a music major running away from this call that Jesus had issued to me. And in the first year, like I knew, if you talked to me, I knew on the inside what I should be doing. So by the time I got to the end of that year of college, I, I said, you know what, I'm going to switch. I'm going to become a Bible major. I'm going to own this. This is what God has asked me to do. I'm going to do this because this is obedience, Right? And so I remember I was working for my grandpa, who was a self-made millionaire, lived in Las Vegas at the time. I was working in his shipping department, business that had his own shipping department. How cool was that? So I was the guy that put stuff in the boxes and, you know, and helped ship it off. And at the house, we were talking, and I, and I had built up, and I was leading to telling him, like, what I felt God was wanting me to do, and I needed to honor this call. And there was a long pause after I explained all of that, long silence. And then he says, you are literally wanting to throw your life away? And not only that, he meant it. He had been helping with tuition payments. They stopped that day. They stopped that day. So when the irony is looking back, my grandpa John was speaking the truth. You literally want to throw your life away? See, when you follow Jesus, you're going to end up doing that, throwing your life away for his mission, for him, for the world, okay, it happens. I didn't recognize it at the time, but my grandpa John was actually prophetically true in what he was saying, ironically so. What did these disciples leave behind? Think about it, right? They left behind their families, their businesses. They weren't fishermen anymore. Thank goodness. <laughs> they were jet-setting evangelists with their own private 737s. No, <laughs> They endured ridicule and persecution, and later on, many of them died physically for what they were claiming to have seen and for what they were telling people. Um, what did they pick up? They picked up some things. They picked up some ridicule and persecution, but they also picked up living life a Jesus way. They lived, they learned how to live life, not perfectly, but they learned a different way of living from their rabbi master, Jesus. And that way of living impacted the early church. This is how bad it got. You know, I've told you this before. Christians would go to the garbage dumps and take the children that only had like nine fingers, that were girls, that were all the things the people of the first century didn't want. Two people went through the garbage dumps, slave traders and Christians. Slave traders to see if anything had potential to be sold later, and Christians to literally bring them in their own homes and raise them as their own children. This is where the idea of God children came from, okay? So, so Christians did this, and they, when the plagues would hit, it was the Christians that would take care of the family members who had literally been thrown out on the street to die because everyone in the family was afraid to get to the sickness. 
It was so bad that Emperor Julian, look this up, Emperor Julian was so concerned with these Nazarenes, that's what he called them, that he doled out money to every governor in the Roman Empire and said, I want you to outspend these Nazarenes. They are causing problems because everybody's got allegiance to this Jesus, and I want allegiance to be to Rome. So outspend them. If they do take in poor kids, you know, from you do it four times as much. Well, guess what happened with all that money that went out to these Roman governors? With men, and they were men, who were living largely for themselves. Not a penny went to what it was supposed to go to, right? Okay? A disciple lets Jesus lead. And if, if that wasn't clear enough, Jesus himself brings this clarity. So Jesus gives this sermon, long sermon, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And when he's wrapping it up, he makes a series of warnings. Now, this Sermon on the Mount, he's challenging people to live in a kingdom way. And he talks about things that are just normal things, money, love, promises, lust, and sex, uh, service, all kinds of just normal, everyday things are part of this sermon that he teaches. And he says, I want you to live this kingdom way, this different way. Um, and he also, in, the, in this sermon, challenges the religious leaders to consider their own hypocrisy, right? Because the religious leaders of Jesus' day would, would throw their own moms out on the street and then try and get the, you know, the, so that they wouldn't have to pay an inheritance temple tax stuff. I mean, but they would make sure that they followed all the rules meticulously, and they would still throw them. I mean, so hypocrisy of the worst sort. And Jesus was calling them out on it. And so at the end of this long sermon, he issues a series of warnings. He says in 13 and 14, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is narrow and the road is difficult and only a few find it. Will you enter the gate to life in the kingdom of God and embrace a life of following me or will you reject me for what's popular? Uh, verses 15 and following. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick up grapes from a thorn bush or figs from a thistle? A good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. This is almost like Dr. Seuss. Come on. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, you can identify people by their actions. So many people in the United States had a family experience, a work experience with someone who said, oh, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, and were absolute scoundrels. And because of it, right, they rid off, wrote off all of Christianity. And Jesus himself is very clear. Fruit and tree are connected. If Jesus is leading and you're following, that's one thing. If Jesus isn't leading, <laughs> that's something else altogether. Um, verses 21 and following. Not everyone who calls to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven and enter, will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Will you obey my Father's will or will you chase after false manifestations of spirituality that just bring about destruction? And then if that weren't enough, you've got the rock and sand. Anyone who listens to my teaching, and here's that word again, follows it, 
is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish, like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and flood come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Will you build your life on me as a solid rock or will you succumb to the pleasant life of ease that will cause you to be unprepared for the storms of life. See, in all of these things, is Jesus like Oprah, where he's just wanting to be kind of like a coach for you or a cheerleader for you, or is it more than that? It's more than that. He wants to lead. He wants you to follow. This is a fundamental call that has been true about Christianity for 2,000 years, and it hasn't changed. So my first question is simply this. Am I someone who follows Jesus? In my life, is Jesus leading or am I? And look, if you're like all of us, this isn't perfect following or perfect obedience. If you don't believe me, read the Gospels. Look at Peter and some of the guys, early followers of Jesus. The women are more faithful than the men in the, what we read in the Gospels, okay? So it's not about perfection, but it is about overall direction. As Eugene Peterson says, obedience in a long direction. So am I someone who follows Jesus? Am I familiar yet with what Jesus taught? If you're going to follow him, right, you should know what he taught. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are key books for us, for you, for anyone who wants to be following Jesus. Think about it this way. If you had a job and you worked for a boss and your boss had produced a 70-page document that listed what they were going to reward and punish what they expected from you as an employee. And if, and if one of your coworkers dis, would, were to say to you when you were doing something, they were like, wait a minute, the boss doesn't like that. And you'd be like, oh, I just haven't had time to read it. Your coworker would think you were crazy, wouldn't they? What are you talking about? Like, that's, the boss has made it clear. Like, it's right there in black and white in the manual. So you, you could read it in an afternoon. What do you mean you haven't had time? You work here. <laughs> or if you had a teacher or a prof, and you were going through the medical school thing where it's very, very rigorous, and the prof made it very clear, 70-page document, here's how you can get through my class and pass. And you were to say halfway through the semester, oh, I haven't had a chance, right? The other students would be saying to you, do you not want to go to medical school? Like, what's your problem? They would think you were insane, okay? What is Jesus calling me to leave behind? What is he calling me to pick up? When we follow Jesus, there are things that we leave behind. Uh, some of the things in my life, the need to control, OCD need to control. I have, I am in, it's a, still a work in progress because that need can harm other people in my life. The funniest thing is everybody who's worked for me at Generations has been like, you are the so laissez-faire person I've ever met. Like, and I go, I know, I'm working really hard <laughs> to make this not be the case. Right, Matt? This, do I micromanage you? No. Okay? So, like, but that's, that's a testimony to God's grace. It's not like, okay? So what is Jesus calling me to leave behind? What is he asking me to pick up? 
So how do you do this? What does this look like? And this is the first mark of a disciple. If I could represent it with an icon, I'd represent it with a head. It's a head decision point. Jesus leads, I follow. And our picture kind of points that out too. I don't know if you noticed, but the guy in the front is Jesus. And these are all the people following him. Okay, just wanted to point that out in case you missed that, okay? So, so how does, what does this look like? Okay, if Jesus leads and I follow, well, first of all, it's a decision, right? At some point and probably multiple points along your life, you're basically going to have a set of keys and you're going to hand them over to Jesus in a metaphorical spiritual sense and go, okay, here you go. You lead, I will follow. I don't want to do this. I don't want to let go. I so want to control everything in my life. I'm not even sure I trust you completely, but in handing over these keys, it's an act of faith and trust. You lead, I'll follow. It's a decision. The second thing is it requires an investment of time. There's no, there's no shortcuts for Bible intake, Bible reading. And I would advocate gospels. If you're if in, in this series, you're like, okay, yes, I want Jesus to lead, then read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, right? Bible intake is huge. And what I mean by oikos fellowship is you need other people. Yes, even us introverts need other people around us so that we're processing the steps that we're taking in faith. We're being bumped up against. Um, you know this for those of you that are marriage, right? When you got married... 10 years into it, you were like, oh, in order for this to really be love, there's going to have to be personal growth oh. <laughs> on both our parts, <laughs> right? Okay, and so that's, that's how it works. Proximity causes that, okay? So it's a decision and it's an investment of time, all right? Jesus leads, I follow. I want to give you a couple of stories that flesh this out from people I know. So I, I had a friend who, uh, through a series of conversations, kind of found his way back to God, in a sense, all right? So he had grown up in the church, had spent 15 years of his adult life not doing anything with God, organized religion, and he felt like Jesus was calling him, and he wanted to say yes. And he had been living with a woman for 10 years, right? Um, and part of that process for him in letting Jesus lead was he felt like, you know, I want to marry that, like, I want to marry her. Like, I don't want to just live together anymore. Like, I want to make vows before God. And you could see the Holy Spirit working him on this. And so they got married. It wasn't a big deal. They actually just went to the courthouse and paid the 30 bucks, right? But they also wanted the church to bless their union, and they wanted to really honor one another as a husband and wife. She also came to faith in this process, okay? So there's an example of Jesus leads, he follows. He could have said, no, I like this arrangement. He could have done any number of things, but he just said, yes, sir, Jesus, okay, I'll take that step. I had another friend, uh, two years ago, their church collapsed in on itself. It was a tragic story. Every member of the governing board resigned in anger, every single one, okay? This church doesn't exist anymore, right? So they had their tail between their legs. They had given their heart and soul to this place, and they were hurt. Uh, a year or two before that, they had felt convicted to change how they managed their money, and they had actually started tithing on a regular basis, right, you know, about a year before the church imploded. And so 
uh, about three, four, five months after just not going anywhere and kind of floundering, I get a call from him, and he says, I don't know what to do because I feel like we need to continue to honor God. Like, like we made this decision, and I feel like the fact that we're in between places now, we could just totally, and I'm doing this house renovation project, and I could use the money that's sitting in our savings account right now that we've been doling in every two weeks would it be okay if I just started giving through generations, right? So, right, the human part of me is like, well, sure, right? But <laughs> now, they found a church now, so that money goes to that church. But you know what? What an amazing act of obedience on his part in wanting to let Jesus lead that he would, you know, and, and I remember hearing his wife, she was like, Trust me, I know we're going to spend that money. And like, I feel like God's done all these neat things in our lives in the last few years. And despite all the awfulness of church, like I, we're not giving up, okay? And, and what an amazing thing, okay? So Jesus leads, we follow. That's, if I could make this as simple as I could. And Jesus himself provides clarity on this, all right? Jesus, this is at the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. I'm with you always, always to the end of the age. You know, when I see posters on Facebook about that verse, do you know the word that's really big? Go! Do you know in the Greek, the word that's the one verb? Make disciples. <laughs> That's the verb. All the other verbs are modifying verbs of make disciples. In other words, Jesus' marching orders to us wasn't go gather a crowd, go build big church buildings, go produce tracks. All of those are good things. Nope, it's make disciples. And the first mark of a disciple is someone who lets Jesus lead. 